Thanks be to God. You may be seated, everyone. Hey, um, so last week we were actually supposed to start this new sermon series in the season of Lent, and Lent is the season where we're kind of moving towards Easter Sunday, which is a celebration that Christians believe a historical event that Jesus actually rose again from the grave. And uh, maybe you're new to Christianity, or maybe you're someone who's just exploring this faith thing. Well, this is what Christians actually believe, that Jesus was someone who actually lived and actually resurrected from the grave. And so we thought during this Lenten season, well, it would be very appropriate for us to learn about who this Jesus person is. Not all the trappings that come with this religious system or institution or Western Christianity, but what does Jesus say about himself? And so we're actually looking in the gospel accounts, which are basically historical accounts of the person of Jesus, looking at who does Jesus say about who he himself is? And so we're calling the sermon series, I Am, because in the gospel of John, which again is a historical account of the person of Jesus, Jesus actually makes these claims about himself. So you can take this, if you have any problems with Jesus, you can actually say like, okay, well, these are the actual words of Jesus. Again, not the ways that people or the church have interpreted him through the years, but Jesus himself, we can look for ourselves at what he says. Now, here's the thing about um, when Jesus makes these statements about himself, like in the gospel of John, the first statement that we're going to look at is this idea of him saying, I am the bread of life. Now, just a quick clue though, whenever Jesus says these words, I am, he actually uses the words, the way that it's translated in the Greek is, is ego me. Can I hear you say ego me? Can I hear you say that? That's right. We get the word ego waffles from, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, no. Yeah. Sorry. Bad joke. But anyhow, ego a me. That's what it says. Every single time this appears and it appears time and time again, whenever the gospel of John accounts for what Jesus is saying about himself, he says, ego a me. The ver- it comes from the verb to be, or it says, I am. Now here's what's so, so revolutionary about Jesus continuing to use these words by saying ego a me. Why would he continue saying that? You see in the Hebrew scriptures, which was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, There are these moments where in God identifies himself as the great I am. So check out this passage in Exodus chapter three. Now this comes to us. You don't even need to be a Christian. You maybe have heard this story. Moses is before burning bush and God is revealing and calling out Moses to deliver the people of Israel. And so, but Moses is fearful, he's scared, because right now, Israel's under captivity under Egypt. And so, basically, God is trying to pump up Moses and saying, like, listen, you got this, go, and and go with great power and boldness. And Moses is like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What should I say? Who should I say has sent me? And check out what it says. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites who think I'm a nobody. Sorry, this is my own translation, right? (laughs) Who think I'm a nobody. I have no authority, spiritual authority, or real authority to tell them anything, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now look at what God says to Moses. I love this. He says, I am who I am. Then he drops the mic, right? Like, I mean, this is so amazing. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. Just tell them, I am. The verb to be has sent me to you. Now, when scholars, Jewish scholars, they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, which was the common language of the ancient world during the time of Jesus, they translated in about 200 to 300 BCE, during that time, they translated the Hebrew to the Greek. And the way that the Greek was translating this was whenever God says, just tell them I am has sent you. Guess what they would write? They would write, Ego, Amy. 
So here's what's happening then, right? In the gospel of John, whenever this word comes up, whenever Jesus is basically saying, listen, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. Whenever he would use these statements, people would lean in and be like, well, well, what's Jesus saying about himself? He's basically saying, ego, Amy. Listen, the God that you worshiped, the God who delivered the people of Israel, who parted the Red Sea, this God who identified himself as the great I am. Like Jesus is basically tying himself to that same story of this God, but in the present, in the flesh, and this God, that when Jesus would stand before people and he would basically say, listen, I am the bread of life. He's saying, ego, a me. Like people would lean in and be like, wait, 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 whoa, what did you just say? You're using some really hollowed words there. And the fact that it comes up so frequently is this, is this sign, this signal that Jesus is putting him in a different kind of category. Now, for Jesus himself to do this, and many scholars have said, like, for Jesus to do this, he's either lying, he's he's deliberately lying to people because he's trying to equate himself with the divine God, right? Like, this is what Jesus is trying to do. He's either lying or he's a lunatic. He's a madman who somehow thinks that he's equated with God. Or he's Lord. He is who he says he is. He is the great I am. So we come to this first I am in John chapter six and look at what happens in this story. Now, what's so unique about this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men, some people estimate that including women and children, it was probably 20,000. We don't know for sure, but this, this is the one miracle that appears in all four gospels. So there's something so significant about this moment where Jesus is talking about being the bread of life. Now look at what happens. Uh, He's basically, as he's, Can we go to the slide about uh, the text there, John? Yep. When they had all had enough to eat. So basically, this is what Jesus does. Remember, it's five loaves and two fish. He takes a boy's lunch. He blesses it, breaks the bread, and it begins to multiply in this miraculous way. We have no idea when this multiplication happened. Was it while people were, well, is it immediately like food appeared? We don't even know. It's just a great mystery. Now look at what happens. When they had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now here's just a signal then, okay? Here's what Jesus does. He takes a little boy's lunch And in this miraculous way, it multiplies. It multiplies so much that there's more at the end than what they started with. There's 12 basketful. So can you imagine like this miracle happening for 20,000 people? They probably didn't even know what was happening. But for those in the inner circle, you saw the disciples having their, kind of when the scripture reading was done, you saw the disciples having their own debate about kind of what they should do. And yet this miracle happens and they're overflowing with more than enough. And because of that, after people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, why do they want to make him king? Because they've seen this whole miracle take place. They've seen him multiply five loaves and two fish, and now it's fed 20,000. I mean... For a lot of finance folks in the room, you know, I know you guys are like, that's an amazing cost benefit. Like the return on investment there is amazing. I mean, I could imagine these people thinking like, wow, if that's what Jesus can do with five loaves and two fish, and then you got 12 basketfuls left over, 
Surely what this guy can do, he's got enormous power, an enormous marketing capacity. Just the business possibilities with Jesus are enormous. And that's what New Yorkers would think, right? Like we could really maximize this prophet, this Jesus guy, this miracle worker. This is unbelievable. I mean, they see the power that's at his fingertips and they want to make him king by force. Now, Jesus actually withdraws And then look at what happens. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs it performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, you guys see this as kind of just like on this very human base level. You want to make me king by force because you saw the kind of productivity, (laughs) the kind of flourishing that happens with just a little bit that I could, you saw this miracle working power. But Jesus begins to teach now about not simply what's happening in this natural realm, but he begins to teach about a spiritual insight about our lives. Look at what happens. He says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what, 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 what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give me? that we may see it and believe you. What will you do? And then look at what they do. They tie in the story of their ancestors. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, they're like, Jesus, you're talking about the spiritual truth about God, his will, his ways, something that goes even beyond the loaves. And Jesus basically, and then they start to refer to their own history, the ancestors of manna being provided in the wilderness. And check out what happens. Jesus ends up saying, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. I mean, what you're talking about, we saw an amazing miracle take place where no one has to go hungry anymore. And Jesus is basically, no, 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 I wanna wanna point to a different reality. And look at what he says. Jesus declared, I am, ego eimi, the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, there's about 10 different sermons I wanted to give today, so I'm gonna try to narrow it down into a little bit. Because here's what's so extraordinary about what Jesus is basically saying. He's saying, I am the bread of life. Ego eimi, the bread of life. And he basically says, whoever eats of this will never grow hungry and never grow thirsty. But the reality is, even this little miracle that Jesus had done, sorry, I called it a little miracle. Sorry, Jesus, this short change you there. But uh, right, like even this miracle that Jesus had done The reality is, and he points this out even in this whole explanation that he gives in John chapter 6, people will go hungry again. I mean, isn't it true? Like after people eat, like a few hours later, they're like, I'm getting hungry again. Maybe I can get more of that 12 basket full. Right? And Jesus is basically saying like, no, no, no. Do you see there's there's a a spiritual truth that I want to give to you, a dynamic of something far greater than simply being physically fed. And now he brings in this metaphor by basically saying, I am the bread of life. Now he's tying together this, all these different stories and narratives of what's happened, right? Because they brought up manna in the desert, 
Why? Is because when, when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, they were given this thing called manna or bread, or it's literally called what is it? But this manna, this bread, was a sign of God's provision when the people of Israel had left Egypt and they're wandering in the desert. Now, check out this passage. Sorry, there's a lot of text that I'm going to be rolling through, but like, check out this passage of what happens in the book of Exodus when it comes to manna in the desert, in the wilderness. Look at what happens. Moses said to them, again, this is uh, in, in the book of Exodus, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. Now, this is basically what happened. The Israelites have fled from captivity of Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness, and they start to grumble. They're like, we were well fed. At least when we were slaves, we were at least well fed. And, and Moses is like, hey, listen, be, like, just chill out. God's going to provide, and he's going to do it in this miraculous way. He's going to give you bread from heaven or manna from heaven. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. So you get the dynamics of this miracle. Here's what's happening. Manna is appearing every morning and people are supposed to go out and to collect their, their manna. But here's what happens. Moses basically says to them, don't keep any of it more than that one day. That's God's commandment to you. This manna will be with you just for one day. (laughs) Now look at what happens. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. (laughs) I mean, I don't blame the Israelites here. I mean, you're wandering, you're probably hungry. These people are, they've just left captivity. They're wondering, how in the world are we going to have enough to live on? And what would happen? This manna would appear. And can you imagine, like, I mean, coming from this immigrant background that I come from, I mean, my parents probably, we would have been the first ones awake. We probably wouldn't have even gone to sleep so that we could be the first ones. Gathering as much bread as possible and having enough, not just for two days, not just for three days. We would have enough probably for the whole year. I mean, that's our family. That was kind of our mentality. You just save up, accumulate as much, especially when life is hard. But that's not the commandment. The commandment is actually, no, 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 just keep enough for one day. And when people disobeyed God, look at what happens. There's maggots and all sorts of things that happens. Then look what happens. Go to the next slide. Um, Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what happens on the Sabbath when you're not supposed to do any work. I'm actually going to give you two days' worth. <laughs> Tomorrow's will be the day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever it is left and keep it until morning. So only on one day, it would actually last for two days. This was Sabbath. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you were to gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath, there will not be any. I mean, don't, it's so amazing that God kind of puts the stipulation in place. Basically, what he's basically saying, like, listen, I am your daily sustenance, and here's what you need to know, and here's what you need to do. You need to trust me enough that when life is hard, especially hard, when it's especially difficult, you're to trust me enough that every day 
I'm going to give you what you need. Now, there's a part of me that really chafes against this. <laughs> In fact, I not just chafes against it, I just revolt against this. Because, I mean, in my view, like, if I were one of the Israelites, I'd be like, God, you know what? Um, when things are hard, it'd actually be nicer, God, if you gave, like, not that you said you are the bread of life, but that you are the filet mignon of life. Show me your power, God. You know, like, there's almost this defiance of, like, wanting to be like, hey, God, like, just bread? Seriously? Like, come on. I want to see you do something even more incredible, you know? Like, then I'll really trust you, God, is if you give something luxurious. Moreover, especially when things are, are hard, when you've led me out of Egypt and we're wandering and wondering where our next meal will come from, seriously, you're just going to provide enough for each day? Like, really? Come on, you're God. Like, can't you provide way more? Then I'll really believe in you. Then I'll really trust you. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever been in a place in your life where it feels like life is incredibly difficult? And maybe one of the reasons perhaps that your faith and mine has teetered maybe even during the pandemic is you've been wondering and you've been asking God, like, gosh, God, like, in the midst of some of the most trying times in my life, why won't you just lavish us with prosperity and blessing? Have you ever been there? Maybe you got a diagnosis. It's been so painful for you and for your family, and you're wondering, God, can't you just do an extraordinary miracle? Maybe you've gone through a season of depression. Just wondering where God is in the midst of it. You want God to work in this incredibly miraculous way. And yet, it just feels so challenging. Uh, you know, during the pandemic, uh, there have been so many people who have lost so much. And I think as a pastor, you know, I, I think Tina and I, we just get an inordinate amount of news from people of some of the struggles that they've endured. There's been illnesses, surgeries, the loss of loved ones. And um, it's been really painful to, to cry out to God and to ask him for more. And to believe that he does care. And I know that um, some of you all are going through some immense pain. And some of it, it's been, you know, accentuated in the past couple of years. And some of you, it's just been years of this. Loved ones that you know that are hurting or, you know, things that people are going through. And one of the most frustrating things, I got to tell you, when I read this passage, is like, come on, God. Like, really? Just, you're just going to melt away the manna? Can't you just give us more? Why is it that, especially in tough times, in difficult moments, why is the manna only there every day? 
You know what's interesting is that Jesus would actually teach, when he was teaching people to pray in Matthew chapter 6, and maybe you've heard this prayer before, it's the Lord's Prayer. And notice in the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that Jesus teaches his people to pray. He says, give us this day our daily bread. It's like Jesus knows that the exercise of faith is one that needs to be renewed daily. It's a way of entrusting our lives to God, a way of saying, God, give us our daily bread. You know, uh, I didn't ask Chris if I could use this illustration. Sorry, Chris. But like, Chris, we actually are on this morning prayer call once a week, and one of the the fascinating things about this whole journey is it's been two years now we've been meeting every week on Wednesday mornings to pray together and we just give like it's, it's just 30 minutes and we pray and we share and um, you know, as I look back at my journey over the last two years I mean there were moments that just felt absolutely impossible for him and his work and family and I think me for work and family and just like all the and then, I mean, every once in a while, we'll look back, and we still have some of these issues that we're going with and through and some of these difficulties, but then we kind of look back, and we're like, wow, but two years later, like, we're still here, and we're still pressing in, believing, and hoping, and trusting, and believing that God's going to do something. And it's this, uh, it's this remarkable time. I don't know if it's like this for you, Chris, but for, us to, for me to look back and be like, wow, two years, God has really kept us. And that doesn't mean like things are, everything's great now. Um, I mean, two weeks I was calling, on the call, I'm like, I have COVID. And he's like, after two years. It's like, I'm COVID free now, everyone just wants you to know. Uh, but, but it's almost like there's this resilience that's been built up by looking back at the promise of God's faithfulness every day. And by believing that, man, if God has brought us thus far, he's still going to continue to take us into the future. It's not the way I would have preferred it. I wish this pandemic was done like March 15th, 2020. But it's somehow, it's in the mystery of God's economy. This is how he works. And there's somehow that Jesus teaches us to pray, this is our daily, give us our daily bread you know what's interesting is uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or the 12-step movement for people who are going through uh, addiction and addictive behavior. Uh, one of the things I'm so, you know, I'm so drawn for this movement, Alcoholics Anonymous, that's really transformed many lives on no budget that's proliferated around the world and it's based on these scriptural principles, uh, the first of which is I am powerless and I admit my need for a higher power, right, which is God himself. One of the sayings, if you were to ever walk into a 12-step meeting or if you were to walk with someone who's been in recovery, is one of the sayings is like one step at a time or one day at a time. One day at a time. And so at these meetings, there will be celebrations where someone will say, hi, my name is Drew, I'm an alcoholic, and everyone will say, hi, Drew. And then I'll go ahead and share how many days I've been sober. Now, what's amazing about the experience is like as people are there, if someone says, I'm just one day sober, it's like, yes, we celebrate that. Others who are 40 years sober, they're, they're celebrating this. 
And one of the principles of one day at a time is this idea that, you know, there's, God gives us enough grace for each day. And if I can just approach each day, just one day at a time, what we end up doing is we just put one day in front of the other, and then one day becomes two days, and then the second day becomes a third day, and the third day becomes a fourth day, and the fifth, you know, and so on and so forth. And one of the most beautiful things is being able to see how this process of one day at a time could lead to 40 years of sobriety or however many years or days of sobriety. Now, here's the thing. That what happens, though, for an addict, of course, is there's a day where there's a relapse that happens, right? So maybe I've made it to day 20, but there's a relapse that happens. And the idea is we'll keep showing up because when you keep showing up, guess what? You start a new streak. <laughs> so even if it's 20 days, hey, just one day at a time, let's go back to that first step and let's keep coming back to just one day at a time. You know, there's something so beautiful about kind of this process of give us this daily bread and just one day at a time of the daily reminders that we need to entrust our lives to this higher power, to entrust our lives to Jesus, to entrust our lives to God. And when Jesus basically says, I am the bread of life, See, he's, he's tying this to the story of manna in the wilderness, and he's tying this to not kind of having a life of overabundance, because God, of course, he could give 12 basketfuls, and that's why people are so drawn to him. But Jesus would actually bring this teaching of like, hey, listen, I am the bread of life, and I'm going to tell you a way of not hungering anymore. And the way of not hungry anymore is to come to this place of daily dependence on the, this higher power, on this God who, despite all the needs, despite all the, the tragedies and the difficulties of today, if we can come to him with our own broken hearts, with our own broken lives, and we can come with humility and say, Jesus, you are the bread of life, then we actually have a chance to make it in this world. When Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, he's not saying like, I am the seven-course ta- you know, seven tasting menu at this luxury Manhattan restaurant. No, he's saying, listen, I am going to give you enough every day, even in your most trying circumstances, to demonstrate to you how I'm all you need. Uh, when I was going through a season of employment, this was before we started Hope Church, and kind of in the story of Hope, I've shared the story of how like, uh, I was on a pastoral team, but like at this church in Queens, uh, New Life Fellowship. And while I was there, I realized there were two things that were keeping me at the church. One, I, I feel kind of embarrassed or sheepish to say this, but one was money. Not that I made a lucrative position there, but every time I thought about leaving, I thought, what am I going to do? I, like I've, the only professions I've had is a janitor and a teacher and like a, a minister. So like, what do I, so money was what was keeping me there. And the second thing was prestige. Uh, because this was a church that was growing and thriving, and um, I felt like, oh, this is a wonderful place where I could grow as a pastor in my own stature. And I mean, it feels almost icky to say this, but grow as like a, a pastor of significance. And so when I realized that the two things that were keeping me there were money and prestige, I thought, these are really bad reasons to be a pastor. Uh, you don't even have to be a Christian to know that, right? Anyone, right? Money and prestige, those are bad reasons to be a pastor. So I ended up resigning. So I ended up resigning, and now all of a sudden, I felt like I had, 
um, like built a career for 10 years, right? Like built a career and climbed up the ladder of my profession. 10 years, I had this enormous opportunity in front of me. And now all of a sudden, I, when I resigned, I, was, I didn't realize how difficult that journey would be from after having invested myself for 10 years, all of a sudden I felt like there's nothing. You know, I'm like, you know, and people would ask me like, oh, so what do you do? I'm like, I'm a pastor. They're like, where? I'm like, dude, why are you going to ask me where? I'm a pastor in New York, okay? Where do you work, huh? Do you want to be so? And they'll be like, oh, well, I work in, you know, Amsterdam. Oh, I didn't, listen, I just don't want to tell you where I work, okay? Right? Like, like, there was like this defensiveness to me. And what it revealed to me was I had come to a place where me being a pastor and a pastor at this church had been that thing for me that was my place of significance, you know? So I would walk into different rooms and I would be conversing with people, no matter what industry they came from, like there was a certain pride that developed in me, right? Like whenever people ask me, what do we do, right? Because that's a question, quintessential question in New York. Like I'm a pastor, like where? Pastor at this church, New Life Fellowship, which is this great church that's doing amazing things. Like there was this way that I had built up this resume of my own significance. Now all of a sudden when that was gone, it was like, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Where? Just a pastor of the city of New York. (laughs) There was this this way that I, I felt like I needed to, and I realized what was happening during that season was, and it was one of the most difficult seasons of my life. It was like, God was teaching me to depend on him again. What's crazy is here I was as a professional pastor who had somehow learned how to do faith without God. And in many ways, what God needed to do was to teach me that Jesus is all I need. And there was this quote that I came upon when I was going through that season of depression and unemployment. And it's this. Tim Keller says, you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You know, here's the reality. In a city like ours, the best and the brightest, the smartest, the wealthiest, and you've probably showed up here. I mean, the reality is, some of the people that it's, it's hardest to be a people, to be a needy people, to be a people who say, Jesus, I need daily bread. It's probably hardest for us, for you all, for a church in, the, in midtown Manhattan. It's hardest to be a people who say, Jesus, yes, you are all I need. Because I'll tell you what, it's easy for me to say, well, Jesus, you're all I need, but honestly, I have my intellect, I have my degrees, I have my net worth, I have my retirement, I have my LinkedIn profile, all the things that you and I have built to give us a sense of prestige and honor and power and wealth and whatever it might be. And the invitation when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, what he's inviting you to do is to say, will you let go of your own ego? Will you let go of your own striving and personal ambitions for significance? And will you just come as a human being who says, I am hungry. I need bread. Daily bread. You know, one of the beautiful things about Jesus, he says, I am the bread of life. 
And look at what Jesus says when he meets with his disciples one last time before he dies. He takes the bread. He gave thanks. He breaks it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And what he basically says is, if you ever doubt that the God of the universe, the great I am, who was with Moses, created the cosmos, if you ever are doubting whether he is for you, whether he is with you, whether he is enough, I want you to remember this moment where my body is broken, given for you, to remind you that he is enough. He'll always be enough. The question is, will, will we receive that? Will we trust that? Will we say, Jesus, yes, you are enough.